Fired Up show starts right now. And hello, everybody. Welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. Thank you so much for uh, dropping in, downloading, and listening to our podcast as you do each week. I'm so grateful for all of you that listen to the show week over week. Uh, it's been a roller coaster week this week, and uh, we're going to get into some of the highlights uh, of some of the key things with the political system as we always do. But first, as always, we're going to start off with our update on where we stand in terms of the COVID virus here in the United States. We're currently at 85.5 million cases. We've had uh, 1,011,000 people who have died from the illness, and we are just shy of 560 million people who have been vaccinated. And of course, that includes people who are fully vaccinated and people who have just received one dose. So we continue to move forward on our our battle against COVID. And uh, also, as a side note, uh, we are hearing more uh, details on outbreaks of the monkeypox here in the United States. It still is a uh, nowhere near the impact that COVID has had in this country, but we do need to keep an eye on it and make sure that we're following uh, the medical and scientific guidance that comes out in terms of protecting ourselves from it. So we'll keep you posted on that one as as we do and uh, let you know what developments occur. So as I said, it was a really uh, impactful week uh, this week, and I, I say that word deliberately. Um, if you, you know, have been following the news over the past week, uh, you'll recall that uh, we had an uh, impassioned speech given by uh, actor and activist Matthew McConaughey, uh, who stood up in the White House press room and spoke uh, about uh, his uh, time spent with the families of the victims of the Uvalde uh, shooting. Uh, it was, to say the least, a, one of the most eloquent and powerful and impactful speeches uh, I have heard given in a very long time. Uh, he talked about uh, the, the victims and their families that he and his wife had met with. Uh, the, the highlights of that, uh, he showed... Uh, a pair of green Converse sneakers with a heart on the right toe of the sneaker, which was worn by one of the victims. And, you know, in, in an emotional segment in the speech, um, he said uh, that those sneakers were important because that was the only way that they could identify who that victim was. And you could see from the tone in his voice and you could see from uh, his, his the look on his face and the fact that he pounded the lectern for emphasis um, that you know this affected him uh, very deeply as did all of the deaths um, he was as I said uh, extremely eloquent uh, and he called out what needs to be done he called on Congress you know the House and the Senate to take action to do what we need to do to you know to to stop these events or to slow these events or minimize these events happening in the future and he gave some very specific 
um, uh, points such as you know background checks and red flag laws and you know a raising the the purchase age for automatic weapons to 21 uh, from 18 where it is now and you know it, it was a very emotional speech to watch uh, you could feel his passion as he was talking I have a link to the full video of his speech uh, it will be included in the description information for this episode and it will show up on the fired up Facebook page and that's at facebook.com forward slash fired up radio. So that's available uh, as of the airing of this podcast for you to uh, download and listen to. And I, I encourage you to do so. Uh, it, it's not that he says things we haven't heard already, but because it's coming from someone outside of the political circles and outside of the normal media circles, there is a level of emotionalism, there is a level of passion that you can hear in his voice and see in his mannerisms that really makes uh, the speech uh, even that more impactful. So check it out uh, if you haven't already. If you, you missed it when it was aired, uh, it will be, as I said, on the Facebook page. The other big uh, news item for the week, uh, at least domestically, was the first of the series of hearings from the January 6th committee. And uh, this happened in prime time on Thursday. And uh, the committee chaired by uh, Congressman Benny Thompson and uh, Liz Cheney uh, opened up and gave the opening arguments to what the committee is going to present to the American people and the hearings that are going to be held uh, in six televised sessions. I should say at least six televised sessions. That's how many are on the schedule as of right now. Uh, but you know, the, the first hearing uh, was presented and uh, by all accounts, including my own, uh, it was an extremely well-organized, well-thought-through, and insightful uh, presentation of the preliminaries in terms of what the committee has been investigating over the last uh, year-plus uh, in, in, in doing its in, in inspection of what occurred on the day of January 6th at the Capitol Building in Washington, D.C., uh, there were some new revelations, which we'll talk a little bit about in a minute, uh, but there was really a, a recap and an initial layout of the timeline of you know, the events leading up to January 6th and then the events of the day itself. And uh, as I watched it, and as a side note, uh, I watched the, the hearings on C-SPAN, uh, particularly because I didn't want to have uh, any interruptions or interpretations by, you know, a, a media representative. I just wanted to see it start to finish gavel to gavel so that I could draw my own conclusions. And, you know, a as we say here on this show, I mean, that, that's part of the digging wide, digging deep, where you go and really just go to the sources that are going to give you the straight facts. You can go and check out you know, your, your media outlets of choice uh, at, you know, after that, but you should really 
you know, strive with events like this in particular to, to hear the plain facts, to hear the unvarnished uh, narrative of what went on. Uh, I will say, and it should be noted, that just about every major uh, broadcast network and all of the uh, cable news networks, with the exception of Fox News, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about you know what they did. Um, they carried it in real time and live. Uh, Fox News decided they were not going to air the hearings, uh, and it remains to be seen if they will stick to that plan going forward for the subsequent hearings. But for the first one, uh, they had their regular um, broadcast show, uh, no real updates, uh, no you know, information blurbs came out. Although once the hearing ended, I immediately switched channels to go to Fox News uh, you know, for more detail. And you know, they were busy talking about some very subtle and minor nuances of things that, uh, quote, weren't covered in the hearings or, or quote, the, the Democrats uh, cut and paste out and, and so forth and so on. And, you know, it, it should be noted that the absence of the broadcast on Fox uh, kind of speaks glaringly to some of the things that were going on during the course of the insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, you know, several Fox uh, News hosts were mentioned by name in the testimony provided, uh, most notably uh, Sean Hannity who was tweeting with then um, White House Press Secretary and Trump spokesperson uh, Kelly McEnany uh, about the goings-on at the Capitol and you know, what they should be planning and so forth. So y you could make the, the argument that Fox really didn't want to air something that was going to cast them in a bad light on their own network. Uh, my opinion that's kind of a coward's way out if if you are supposed to be a quote news close quote station uh, you uh, really need to present the news and let the chips fall where they may now Fox has admitted under oath in, in other uh, trials and and you know presentations before judges that they are not a quote news station they are an entertainment station well, apparently that held up. So with the exception of Fox News, it was wall-to-wall -wall coverage everywhere you looked on the hearings. And truthfully, if you were trying to you know, glean some additional facts or information in gathering your opinions on what happened on January 6th of last year, uh, you were not disappointed. Uh, not only was there a very in-depth recap of the day's events, there were also some new elements of information that had not been aired or seen before, uh, particularly uh, in the testimony from the two witnesses they called in, in the hearing, uh, the first being uh, Capitol Police Officer Caroline Edwards, who gave some very emotional testimony uh, recounting her experience uh, on the front line that morning 
uh, as the uh, insurrectionists were coming up to the steps of the Capitol building. Uh, she spoke about how you know her and her fellow officers who were uh, you know substantially outnumbered uh, struggled to hold the fence line and, and the, the line they created out of the bike racks. And she recounted the fact that in the pushing and shoving, uh, she was shoved to the ground. She struck her head on one of the Capitol steps. Uh, she struck her chin on you know part of the bike rack. So she was uh, bleeding and uh, had actually uh, received a concussion from the impact. Yet, as she told it, you know, uh, after she uh, came to, she got right back up and went to assist other officers. Uh, she recounted how she was helping to pick officers up, get them decon decontaminated from substances that were sprayed on them, and how difficult it was to stand because she kept slipping in the blood of off other officers that was on the ground. Uh, her testimony was very emotional and um, very powerful. Uh, the other witness that testified was, was equally powerful, and his name was Nick Quigstead, and he is a videographer who was embedded with the Proud Boys on the day of the insurrection uh, to film you know, what they were doing uh, on that day. He was doing a documentary uh, that included a segment on, you know, the uh, American white nationalist movement. And so he was hanging out with the Proud Boys all day. As he told it, his thought was that they were going to, you know, go to the ellipse and listen to the speeches. But in a, a revelation that had not really been heard before, he recounted the fact that the group of Proud Boys that he was with, which numbered somewhere around 250 to 300, never went to the Ellipse, never went to listen to the speeches. They marched directly to the Capitol uh, fully two hours before the speeches occurred. And so they were positioning themselves for some other action uh, to come later in the day. And he recounted how he was very surprised at that because that was not what he expected. In addition, uh, some of the film clips that he captured included some uh, footage of the uh, leaders of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers having a, an impromptu meeting in an underground parking garage and also video that showed members of the Proud Boys uh, carrying uh, items in their arms that looked a lot like uh, rifles. Uh, they were covered with sheets, but they were carrying them into hotel rooms in the hotel in Virginia where they were staying and, and staging for the day's events. Uh, again, some never-before-seen footage, but you know it, it illustrated one thing that refuted something that many... Um, pundits on the right had been saying that, you know, this was a spontaneous event that, you know, the, the people involved were, you know, were tourists and, you know, just, you know, showing up uh, and decided on a spur of the moment to march down to the Capitol 
and raise a little ruckus. Um, the, he was, was very clear, and then the committee followed up on that uh, with details that this was, in fact, a well-planned-out event. Uh, the committee uh, brought forward evidence, um, brought forward uh, messages and text messages and, and other evidence that showed that the events of January 6th with regard to the actions that were going to be taken by the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and others was something that had been planned for you know, several months prior to January 6th. The presentation also included, and in fact it led off with some recorded testimony from former Attorney General uh, William Barr uh, who described his conversations with uh, President Trump himself and members of the, uh, the president's inner circle, uh, who, when President Trump was asking him with regard to the, the vote count and the, the idea of the big lie, and you know, according to Bill Barr, he told the president to his face that it was all, forgive my language, it was all bullshit that you know the president had lost and this was a message that was echoed not only by you know his uh, chief counsel uh, and members of his uh, staff circle it was also mentioned to him directly by his daughter Ivanka who they also showed uh, tape testimony where she was asked you know what she thought of uh, the statements made by you know former Attorney General Barr, and she said you know she believed him. She has uh, had a lot of respect for Bill Barr, and uh, she believed what he had said that the election, in terms of of her father's uh, the results from her father's uh, campaign, uh, that he had lost, that it was over, and it, it it appeared from what we heard in the testimony that several key individuals uh, in the inner orbit with Donald Trump had said the same. Uh, in fact, one element that, that came out was that there were discussions um, among key people in uh, the, the Oval Office that some type of interference needed to be run against some of the people who were bringing these conspiracy messages and, and all of these mistruths uh, to the former president uh, and to, to keep him isolated from those because he was becoming more and more unpredictable uh, as time was going on. So, you know, it, it, the, it was a very interesting opening day. Um, a, a lot of new revelations uh, that came out. In fact, CBS News uh, has put an article online that talks about six things that uh, we never... Uh, learned from the first, I'm sorry, six new things, excuse me, six new things we learned from the first public January 6th hearing. So it, it starts off with, uh, number one, Trump never called on any law enforcement entity to protect the Capitol. Instead, Vice President Mike Pence did, and that's according to uh, what was said by Vice Chair Liz Cheney. Uh, by the way, Liz Cheney is a Republican from the state of Wyoming, and she has been and continues to get huge amounts of uh, negativity and pushback 
from Republicans and from members of her party, uh, not only because she's on the committee, but because she is giving testimony uh, like that. You know, it, it talks about how uh, President Trump refused to tell the mob to leave the Capitol. Uh, he placed no call to any element of the United States government to instruct that the Capitol be defended. He did not call his Secretary of Defense on January 6th. He did not talk to his Attorney General. He did not talk to the Department of Homeland Security. President Trump gave no order to deploy the National Guard that day, and he made no effort to work with the Department of Justice to coordinate and deploy law enforcement assets. Um, the, the second uh, revelation, revelation that came from the hearing, as I, as I mentioned a few moments ago, was that Ivanka Trump said she accepted Barr's assessment of the election. Uh, that, you know, recounting that then Attorney General William Barr testified that he told Trump he disagreed with Trump's belief that the 2020 presidential election uh, was stolen. And, and as I said, uh, he called it out and told the president to his face that he believed that the lies were all bullshit. Uh, third new revelation that we learned, multiple Republican lawmakers, and I found this very interesting and very telling, multiple Republican lawmakers sought pardons from the White House after January 6th. And, you know, we knew that uh, Representative Scott Perry had requested a pardon from uh, then-President Donald Trump, but what we hadn't learned until the hearing was that multiple other Republican congressmen also sought presidential pardons for their roles in attempting to overturn the 2020 election, according to um, Liz Cheney. Uh, their names uh, of these other individuals were not given. However, it is possible that we will learn of them in subsequent hearings. Now, you know, to, to to frame that in, in perspective, uh, the only reason that you would be requesting a pardon is because you believe or the facts are pointing to the, the fact that you have committed a crime. So with, with these number of Republican members of Congress uh, seeking presidential pardons, uh, you know, and, and we don't know what they were looking to be pardoned for, it isn't too hard uh, to kind of infer that there was something going on that they, they believed or they know is illegal and they wanted uh, the, part, the protection of a presidential pardon uh, to protect them from it. The fourth revelation was that Jared Kushner took White House counsel threats to resign as, quote, whining, close quote. Uh, the article says the president's son-in-law and a top advisor, Jared Kushner, was asked by Cheney during his tape deposition about multiple threats made by White House counsel Pat Cipollone and his team to resign amid what Cheney termed the lawless activity surrounding Trump's efforts to hold on to the presidency. And, you know, Kushner essentially uh said you know he wasn't paying attention to that um, because he was working on trying to get quote as many pardons done as possible he said 
And I know him and the team were always saying, we're going to resign. We are not going to be there if this happened, if this happened. And he took it to be just whining. All right. So the, the fifth revelation, uh, and this one I mentioned a, uh, a few moments ago, was that the Proud Boys uh, did not march to the ellipse to hear uh, the speakers and President Trump. They marched directly to the Capitol even before the, the speaking activities at the ellipse started. Um, and the article says, the Proud Boys began marching on the Capitol before Trump's speech rallying supporters even began. And this, again, was according to the documentary film that was uh, done by Nick Quisted, uh, who was in the middle filming a, a documentary on the Proud Boys on January 6th. Uh, Quistad said he was confused to an extent why we were walking away from the president's speech because that's what I felt we were there to cover. So, you know, the, it seems like the Proud Boys were on a plan or on a mission because they went directly to the Capitol rather and bypassed the speeches at the Ellipse. Um, and the sixth one that, that came out that CBS is reporting, um, members of Trump's cabinet discussed the 25th Amendment, uh, according to Liz Cheney. And she said the members of Trump's cabinet discussed the possibility of invoking the 25th Amendment, adding the American public will hear more about it in the coming public hearings. Uh, the 25th Amendment, by the way, provides the cabinet a path to replace the president. Uh, it was never invoked on or in the days after January 6th. So, yeah, the, the 25th Amendment, if you're not familiar of the Constitution, allows for the cabinet to, uh, to remove the president from office uh, based on a very specific set of criteria or circumstances. So, you know, it, it, is, it was written into the Constitution uh, as a safety valve uh, so that a a rogue president uh, would be able to be removed uh, and you know the the vice president could be elevated to the role of the presidency uh, by the the cabinet so you know if you want to find out more about that uh, you can go online and search for 25th amendment to the constitution and it will give you the details on the what the why and the how that that takes place so you know, it, it is something uh, that you may be familiar with because on occasions where uh, the president is going to be incapacitated for a reason, such as when uh, Ronald Reagan was shot uh, years ago, uh, he uh, implemented the 25th Amendment handing over presidential power to his vice president at the time. Uh, and notably... Uh, it's been used when you know, other presidents uh, since then have had to go into the hospital uh, or, or receive medical treatment for one you know, medical condition or another. Uh, and you know, it's likely or it occurs that they are going to be receiving anesthesia, which means they will be incapacitated. So they will sign a letter assigning power to the vice president to be the acting president while they are out of office. Uh, the, the other thing to keep in mind, and what's notable here, 
is that when Donald Trump was uh, airlifted to the hospital uh, when he uh, was diagnosed with COVID, uh, he did not execute uh, a letter or execute the 25th Amendment, uh, even though reports are that for a brief period of time he was in fact incapacitated. But he did not relinquish power to Mike Pence during that time. So just something to keep in mind. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's take a break here. Uh, we've got public service announcement coming up, uh, courtesy of your friends here at WJMS Media and the Fired Up crew. Uh, so we'll be right back on the other side of the break. Responsible gun owners want responsible gun ownership laws. You know who else does? Responsible parents, sisters, brothers, and friends. Responsible bosses, employees, teachers, and students. Cat people, dog people, horse people, and even responsible fish people. Simply put, responsible Americans want responsible gun ownership laws. Learn more about States United to Prevent Gun Violence at SUPGV.org. Okay, and we're back with the Fired Up Podcast. Thank you for sticking with us. And uh, side note, it's happened more times than I care to count where I've completed my recording, whether it was my radio show or the podcast we do now, and some news event would occur that I wish I could have included in my, um, my weekly podcast, and I have to wait for a week. Well, uh, I got lucky this week. Uh, Sunday, as I was preparing to uh, record this podcast, as I do each week, uh, news came out uh, regarding a uh, bipartisan group of U.S. senators who announced on Sunday that they had reached an agreement on a framework for gun safety legislation, uh, potentially the first significant new uh, U.S. gun law in decades, following a string of recent high-profile mass shootings. Uh, This article came from Reuters. And as you know, uh, gun safety has been a contentious uh, topic in this country for uh, many, many years, even decades, uh, with uh, proposals for various levels of uh, common-sense gun safety uh, and, and other Uh, proposals that have been uh, brought forward and summarily have been either uh, left to die in the Senate or, you know, have never seen the light of day coming out of committees and so forth. Well, um, as I said in my last podcast, the the prior one to this one, uh, sometimes it takes a a public event uh, that is so uh, horrific and so wrenching uh, to kind of shake the country and shake our political leaders out of their uh, Rip Van Winkle type sleep. And uh, maybe, maybe the shooting in Uvalde uh, is the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back uh, because the Senate took up uh, a, a, in a bipartisan committee uh took up some common sense uh, gun safety legislation 
and they proposed them uh, to the uh, to the full Senate. So, you know, as the article says, and again, this came from Reuters, and it came out uh, on uh, Sunday, the twelfth. And uh, I'll I'll go through it. Below are some of the highlights of what uh, what is and what is not covered by the agreement, according to a statement from the group of lawmakers that includes 10 Republicans. Uh, and that's important to note because that's enough to overcome the Senate's filibuster rule. Uh, the things that are in the agreement uh, is a state level crisis intervention support. Uh, the proposal would provide resources to states and Native American tribes to create and administer red flag, and that's in quotations, measures intended to ensure weapons are kept out of the hands of people whom a court has determined to be a significant danger to themselves or others. These measures would be consistent with state and federal due process and constitutional protections. What didn't make it into the agreement was an assault weapons ban, and there's been a lot of discussion about reinstating the assault weapons ban uh, that was enacted in 2000 or 1999 and expired in 2004, which prohibited the manufacture, transfer, and possession of semi-automatic assault weapons and the transfer and possession of large capacity ammunition feeding devices. Uh, the, the measure uh, faces uh, staunch opposition from Republicans in Congress and is not in the framework agreement released on Sunday. Uh, one that is in is an enhanced review process for buyers under 21. Now, the framework calls for an investigative period to review juvenile criminal and mental health records for gun buyers under 21 years of age. This would include checks with state databases and local law enforcement. Uh, another that failed to make the cut, a higher age requirement to buy semi-automatic rifles. If you recall, uh, the... The gunman in the Uvalde shooting had waited until his 18th birthday, and he purchased two AR-15s. Uh, you know, an, an initial uh, proposal would be to raise the age for buying a semi-automatic semi rifle to 21 years old nationwide. Uh, that currently that sits at 18. Uh, what uh, another element that did make it into the agreement? is penalties for straw purchases. So if, this, if, the, if the bill is passed, this new law would crack down on criminals who illegally straw purchase and traffic guns. And a straw pur purchase, uh, by definition, occurs when a person buys a weapon for someone who is not legally allowed to buy one. All right, another one that didn't make the cut, a federal background check uh, expansion. Uh, the framework does not include proposals to expand federal background checks to buy a weapon from three to ten days. It also does not close a loophole in federal law that allows many sales over the Internet and at gun shows to go unchecked. Uh, one that did make it in, mental health services and telehealth investments. The proposal would expand community behavioral health center models and makes investments to increase metal, mental health and suicide prevention program access. It also would help fund crisis and trauma intervention and recovery services and makes investments in programs that increase access to mental and behavioral health services for youth and families in crisis via telehealth. 
All right, and another one that didn't make the cut, a repeal of the liability shield. Uh, the framework makes no mention of amending or replacing a federal liability shield that protects gun manufacturers from being sued for violence carried out by people carrying and shooting their guns. And, you know, this has been something that has been a long-standing uh, pillar of the uh, gun advocates groups uh, dating back into the 70s uh, when it was first brought forward from the NRA. Another one that made the cut and is in the framework is a clar clarification on definition of licensed dealer. Uh, the framework would also carry clarify the definitions of a federally licensed firearms dealer and crack down on criminals who illegally evade licensing requirements. Uh, another in protections for domestic violence victims. Those who are convicted of domestic violence crimes and face domestic violence restraining orders would be subject to criminal background checks for gun purchases under the proposal. Another one that's in school-based mental health and support services funding. The proposed framework calls for funding to expand mental, mental health and supportive uh, services in schools including early identification and intervention programs. And uh, another one that came in, school safety resource funding. Under the proposal, federal funds would go to programs that help primary and secondary schools create safety measures, support school violence prevention efforts, and provide training to school personnel and students. So again, this is an article that came out from Reuters. Uh, this is a recap of uh, what's in and what's out of the U.S. Senate's gun safety framework. So, you know, already the responses that are coming in through social media and other sources uh, are, you know, supportive of this, as, as many are saying, as a first step. But there is still much more to be done. Uh, revisions of language and... Um, processes for some of the ones that didn't make the cut uh, will likely be taken up in uh, future legislation. So we will continue to keep an eye on this, but I concur that it is in fact a very good start, but you know there is still a lot to be done and a lot more work to do. And we need to keep the, the pressure on our legislators to make sure that they are following through on these things and also that they are listening to the wishes of the people. So, you know, add this to your, your chain of communication with your, your senators, your congresspeople, uh, your state and local uh, senators and, and uh, representatives uh, and, you know, anyone else that plays a role in helping to protect our children from gun violence and to protect us us all as well. So again, that, that is some very good news. Uh, it's a good start and uh, let's make sure we're communicating with our elected officials uh, that we'd like to see this uh, move forward to completion and uh, end up on President Biden's desk for his signature. Uh, it, it is a start, it is by no means an end and you know we need to make sure that we let our elected officials know how we feel about this. Um, and, you know, it, it bears mentioning in the light of this, just to keep in mind that 
uh, 90% plus of the American people, regardless of party, um, are in favor of common sense gun safety legislation such as these. And even further, uh, among gun owners, you know, people who lawfully own weapons, 80 plus percent of them are in favor of, you know, common sense, basic gun safety legislation uh, being enacted uh, to, to help curtail this, this reign of gun violence that we've been seeing. Um, last week I talked about the numbers. Uh, it, it is uh, approaching more than 300 incidents just this year uh, of uh, mass gun violence or multiple people injured or killed uh, as a result of gun violence. So there's, there's still work to be done. We need to make sure that you know, we are on our JOB uh, communicating to our elected officials with how we feel. All right, we'll uh, pivot away from the, the gun violence and gun lobby issue. Uh, one of the things that has been a, a subject of much discussion over the last uh, few weeks or a month uh, is, you know, elements of the economy. You know, obviously, uh, we have a situation where inflation is at, you know, record highs. Uh, inflation levels that haven't been seen in this country in more than 40 years um, have been surpassed. Uh, price impacts are happening. Uh, you know, of course, there's been a lot of talk about the uh, baby formula shortage and, um, you know, the, the price of gasoline. And the right has, has taken great effort and energy to lay these things at the feet of the Democratic administration in general and President Joe Biden in, in particular. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the gas prices because that's kind of a universal impact thing uh, along with inflation uh, that just about every one of us uh, can relate to. And there, there's been a lot of you know, talking points coming out from the right about how uh, President Biden has failed to lower gasoline prices and, you know, to, to do enough to you know, reduce the cost uh, of people to fill up their tanks. In particular, that we're now coming into the summer travel season. Uh, this is something that is, is very acutely felt uh, among the American people. Now, I did some research to look into what exactly goes into the cost of you know a, a gallon of gas that we put into our cars and you know even though as we hear now the average price in the united states as of the 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 date of this broadcast um has uh just about eclipsed five dollars a gallon uh and for those of you out in california uh you're looking at you know between six and seven dollars a gallon as well as in some other uh, isolated areas of the country. Um, but I wanted to see what goes into, you know, what it is that we're buying at the pump. Um, so I, I did some research and learned that the retail price of gasoline, uh, and this comes from the U.S. Energy Information Administration, uh, the retail price of gasoline includes essentially four main components. The cost of crude oil, the refining costs and profits, 
distribution and marketing costs and profits and taxes. And as you break that down, uh, what you find out is that in uh, the years 2012 to 2021, the average retail price of a gallon of gas was $2.80 uh, and 14% of that cost uh, was refining costs and profits. 14.3% was distribution and marketing. 17% was federal and state taxes. And 54.8% was the actual cost of the crude oil that made up that gallon. Now, the uh, EIA reports in 2021, and, and again, this was in 2021, the average retail price was $3.01 per gallon. And the refining costs and profits uh, had risen slightly to 14.4%. Distribution and marketing was up uh, better than 1.3% to 15.6%. Uh, federal and state taxes actually went down by six tenths of a percent to 16.4%. And the crude oil price actually went down by 1.2% uh, to 5.3, I'm sorry, 53.6 percent of the cost of a gallon of gas. So, you know, and and when you look at the the price of gas that you're paying at the pump, keep in mind that um, much of that, you know, that number one and most importantly, the thing you need to understand is that the the production and distribution and selling of gasoline in this country is not a federal government process. The federal government does not drill the oil, they do not process the oil, they do not distribute the gasoline, and they do not sell the gasoline to the public directly. Um, you know, much of the cost uh, are federal, state, and local government taxes, um, you know, and according to information the federal tax on motor gasoline is roughly about 18.4 cents per gallon, uh, which includes an excise tax of 18.3 cents per gallon and the federal leaking underground storage tank fees of 0.1 cents per gallon. Uh, local state taxes as of January of this year averaged 31.02 cents per gallon. Sales taxes uh, applied by local and municipal governments can have a significant impact on the price of gasoline in some locations. So when you roll it all up, somewhere uh, between 50 and 60 cents per gallon uh, for every gallon of gasoline purchased uh, goes to federal and state taxes and, and so forth. Um, you know, distribution and marketing uh, costs which vary widely, uh, primarily due to factors like uh, distance between point of entering the distribution system and point of exit at the local gas station, whether it's delivered by tr tanker truck, uh, individual uh, uh, pipelines, and so on and so forth. So the important thing to understand about all of this is uh, none of these factors beyond the federal taxes, which again are 18.3 cents per gallon, are within the sphere of influence of the federal government, i.e., uh, and that includes 
you know, the president of the United States. Uh, the president does not set the price of gas. Now, the, the president could, uh, and I believe he has in some cases, reduce uh, federal taxes or eliminate federal taxes in some markets, uh, but that is pretty much the extent of what the federal government can do about the cost of gas. It is a private commodity uh, developed, uh, produced, developed, and distributed by private companies. And, you know, there, there is, as I said, little or no impact that the federal government can have. Now, be aware that, you know, uh, oil companies are making, you know, what could only be classified as obscene profits on, you know, the, the gasoline. Um, even the smallest uh, you know, refining companies uh, are making, you know, $1 billion, $2 billion, $4 billion a year in profits on the sale of gasoline. And the, the major companies are making, you know, even more than that. So, you know, it, it is clear, and, and there is an article, according to sources uh, that came out of the media in Washington, D.C., um, and it's reported in this article, um, you know, how it talks about how big oil has been making historic profits. In the first three months of 2022, ExxonMobil pocketed $5.5 billion after taxes. Chevron gained $6.3 billion, and ConocoPhillips made $5.8 billion. And as I mentioned, the smaller energy producers which are you know, concentrated in the U.S. and often referred to as wildcatters, are also profiting enormous, enormously. Last week, Pioneer Natural Resources reported first quarter earnings of $2 billion and Marathon Oil uh, revenues of $1.3 billion. So, you know, with, with everyone suffering to, you know, fill their tank to do what what they need to do uh, and I mean I, I can speak personally you know for the first time ever it cost me more than eighty dollars to fill up you know the the fuel tank on my Ford edge um, and, and that's the highest I've ever paid uh, the Democrats on Capitol Hill have called for a windfall tax on oil companies the Biden administration hasn't endorsed this idea but it is pushing U.S. energy companies to help drive down pricing prices by adding more rigs, pumping more crude, and increasing supply. Um, you know, Biden is saying, you know, they have the capacity to do it. My message is it's time. In this time of war, it is not a time of profit. It's time for reinvesting in America. Um, despite this appeal, however, according to the article, the overall U.S. production is still running far below its pre-pandemic level. In February 2020, U.S. oil fields generated around 13 million barrels of crude a day. Last month, they produced less than 11.9 million barrels a day. So, you know, it, 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 as the article states, it raises the question as to whether energy companies are deliberately sitting on their hands to keep prices and profits high. Uh, you know, and it's quoted, uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, said they're not using the money for domestic energy production. 
they're using it for stock buybacks. They're using it to make their shares go up. Uh, the latest earnings announcements from the oil sector seem to back up Schumer's point. Exxon says that it intends to triple purchases of its own stock from investors, a financial tactic corporations use to reduce the number of shares they have outstanding and boost their earnings per share. The company announced it will spend up to $30 billion, with a B, dollars on buybacks between now and the end of 2024. Chevron said that it will devote $10 billion this year to buybacks, double its previous target. Uh, and the article asks, what about increasing output? Exxon and Chevron both reported that during the first quarter, their overall production of oil and gas, which is pumped from drilling facilities in many parts of the world, fell slightly compared with the previous quarter. On the domestic front, both companies said that their U.S. operations produced slightly less crude in the first quarter of this year than they did in the previous three months, uh, but more than they did in the first quarter of 2021. So, you know, it, it, it goes on and on, you know, back and forth. It talks about how uh, the, the pullback in the, the use of fracking, um, you know, has dried up some of the supply that was flowing into the pipelines. Uh, shale oil uh, production's also down. Uh, several shale, shale oil producers went bankrupt and investors suffered big losses that are still remembered on Wall Street and in the oil patch. Um, you know, and, you know, clearly that the, the thought going on in the boardrooms of oil and gas companies in this country is that if they increase and ramp up production quickly, that they're going to get penalized, not rewarded. Uh, it would seem that looking at the profit projections, uh, that's not necessarily a true statement. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's clear and, you know, for, for those of you out there who want to lay blame for the high cost of gas uh, at the doorstep of the White House, uh, you really need to rethink the position and realize that, you know, gasoline in this country is a private commodity. It is, you know, identified, produced, refined, distributed, and sold uh, by a, a collection of private corporations. These are not government agencies. Uh, they are, you know, they are profit driven. And, you know, as I said, uh, all the numbers that are showing up in the billions of dollars uh, just serves to to reinforce that point. Uh, and, you know, like many other things, uh, we need to make sure that that we are communicating with the you know, the, the industry giants in the oil and gas industry uh, to, to state our displeasure in what's going on. Now, unlike, you know, creating a, a huge volume of protest with elected officials where, you know, they could be fearful for their reelection uh, coming up in the future, uh, it is unlikely that we can have a similar impact on the oil and gas companies However, uh, we can include in that conversation our elected officials and make sure that things like, um, you know, the, the government subsidies for oil production, which is something that, you know, the government can uh, impact and influence uh, 
reflect a, a more thoughtful approach to how we incentivize producing you know, oil, gas, uh, and, and gasoline products in this country. Uh, companies that are making you know, double-digit billions of dollars in profits or even single-digit billions of dollars in profits probably don't need additional billions of dollars uh, in government subsidies. Uh, and, you know, side point, the same argument could be made for Big Pharma. Uh, you know, that, another instance, and, and we'll probably dig into that in a future episode uh, to talk about, you know, Big, big Pharma and the profits that they see at the expense of providing needed medications to the people of, you know, our country and the world. Uh, but staying on gas and oil, uh, clearly there is work that we can do. Uh, there is influence that we can bring to bear. So a as always, you know, we need to do our homework. Uh, we need to get the facts and we need to communicate our intentions and our wishes to our elected officials so that they can take up uh, addressing, you know, what's going on with the oil and gas industry uh, in this country and you know by extension you know around the world because it, it it no pun intended but oil and gas fuels all of the economies in the world so whatever we can do to make that more you know cost effective and efficient uh, is only going to help improve the global economy which will help improve you know all all people everywhere so as always, you know, we need to make sure that, you know, we are practicing our activism, that, you know, we are uh, responding to the call to action uh, that's being put forward, and that we are staying informed, involved, and engaged with our, uh, with our elected officials. And for those of you that live in oil-producing states, you know, that includes your state officials. They have a, a bigger role in oil and gas production uh, you know, in your local market areas, and you know they deserve your attention as well. So, you know that that's what we do. That's what we need to do. That's what we have to do. We have to make our voices heard. We have to make our presence felt. So, you know, get into your email. Start emailing your Congress people. Emailing your senators. Emailing your state and your state senators and your state uh, your state house. Uh, representatives and you know let them know that you know a, a change needs to come and that they need to be in front of it or that we will rethink our electoral decisions uh, come the next cycle of elections so there you have it if you have any questions or comments about the show or if you want to push back on any of the topics I've brought up please send an email to the program at firedupradio at yahoo.com I'd love to hear from you. I really look forward to any and all of the emails that I do receive. So um, let's communicate. Uh, there will be links to some of this information you know, in the uh, Facebook page. And uh, with the, uh, the hearings, the January 6th hearings, uh, the first one will actually, uh, by the time you're probably listening to this, the, first, the, the second session will probably already be started because it starts Monday at 10 a.m. And then another one will start on uh, Tuesday and then another one will start on Thursday. 
So any breaking events, I will definitely uh, post them out to the Facebook page or tweet them out from the Twitter account. So uh, if you're not connected to us on social media, please do. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate the fact that you take the time to listen to my show each week. Everybody, please stay safe, stay healthy, have a great week, and I look forward to speaking to you again in seven days. <laughs>